So we're in the book of Job chapter 38. If you're ready, say, let's do this. This week we were at a staff retreat and we left our kids with one of our good friends. And I asked how that was going and she said, hey, are you fine if I do whatever? I'm like, yeah, I trust you. And she said, tonight we're gonna watch Silence of the Lambs with the kids. I was like, you know, that might be a bit of an adult movie. And this book of Job is, is quite an adult book. In... 1633, the month of April, the chief inquisitor that was appointed by Pope Urban VIII began his inquisition of physicist and astronomer Galileo. He was ordered to come to the holy office for trial because of his belief that the earth revolved around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth. This was deemed heretical because the church's official position, of course, was that the earth is the center of the universe. It was the center of the galaxy, of all these things. It could not be disputed, they said. They said, quote, we pronounce, judge, and declare that you, Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by this holy office of heresy. That the sun is the center and does not move from east to west, and that the earth does move and is not the center, we call this heresy. We order that Galileo be prohibited, and we condemn thee to the prison of this holy office during our will and pleasure, and as a salutary penance, we enjoin on thee that for that space of three years, thou shalt recite once a week the seven penitential psalms. That'll show them. As much as these religious leaders wanted the earth to be the center, Galileo tried to let them know, if only you realized the worst thing for this universe would be if the earth was the center. You don't want the earth to be the center. The earth is not the center. The earth is is revolving around that sun that is. Fred Gottlieb, speaking of the book of Job, said, in order to better understand what we're about to read in Job chapter 38, 39, and 40, and we're gonna read a lot of scripture today, to better understand this portrayal of creation that God is about to bring, we must first examine Job chapter three, which we've already covered, in which Job gives vent to his intense suffering in the most pitiful of terms. The description of his lament serves as a basis for the later chapters of the book of Job. Having refused his wife's advice to, to curse God, blaspheme God, he curses the day of his birth, fervently wishing that he had never been conceived. Job yearns for a thorough overturning of creation, saying things like, for example, let there be darkness instead of, as a negating of the bidding of the first creator, let there be light. With an exquisite touch of imagery, the author expresses this call for darkness as may it not see the glimmerings of the dawn, comparing the first light of day to the eyelids of a person just awakening. And listen to this. In profound agony, Job seems, and here it is, this is, this is the sermon today. In profound agony, Job seems to regard himself as the center of creation. The Lord's speeches in chapters 38 and 39 will force him to realize 
that God, not he, is the true center of creation. This is why this is so important. When you're suffering, and all of us do, and all of us have, and all of us will, when you're suffering, it's so difficult to not position yourself in the center of everything that is going on because you're so aware of what is going on. When, in particular, you're in a moment of suffering, there's such a tendency, but this is the whole sermon really today. When we are the center of our universe, our universe eventually falls apart. But when God is the center of our universe, we always find peace. Now, you have to catch this. This is everything today. Job, Tiffany, Terrence, Marcus, when you, if you're down there in, in Greenhouse Orlando right now, when you are the center of your universe, it may take a minute, it may take a month, it may take a year, it may take a lifetime, your universe will fall apart. But when God takes his rightful place at the center of your universe, I don't know how to explain it because we're about to read Job who's still covered with sores. Job who is still devoid of his possessions. Job who is still without a single child to his name. Job who has yet to receive any physical, emotional, psychological, reputational relief. Job is about to find peace even though none of his circumstances have changed. Because when you're the center of your universe, Job, you always fall apart. But when God is the center, you always find peace. So just to give you a review as we're about to jump into Job chapter 38, when, when Satan was meeting before God after having been scouring the earth, seeking whom he may devour, of course, God says, have you considered my servant Job? A Hebrew word that means you've set your mind on Job. And so Satan, also called the Satan in Hebrew, the, the adversary, it's not a formal name like Michael, it's a, it's a title, like an adversary, like a, the person that's adversarial, the accuser. He comes and he accuses Job, ends up um, attacking Job with God's permission, and Job loses everything. He loses his possessions, he loses his children, he loses his reputation. Job loses everything. Subsequent to that, for the next 35 chapters, we find Job complaining, and he's got three friends that have come along, plus a fourth one, a mystery character that comes along, and, and they bring what would be the best of ancient world wisdom. Now, the book of Job is part of what we would call wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes. These are books of wisdom. The book of Job is wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible. This is the best wisdom that the ancient world had to offer, which went something like this. Job, God is just. We know that God is just. We know that God does what is right, and God never does what is wrong. So if you are suffering you must have done something wrong. That's what these wise counselors said to Job. To which Job says, uh-uh. That's not how he said it, but he says, uh-uh. I did not do anything wrong. I'm telling you I'm innocent. To which they said, that's impossible. They said that that's not possible because the way that the universe works is if you're innocent, you will not suffer. The way that you're suffering, to which Job's like, no, I'm telling you, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything. To which they basically, their wisdom basically goes like this. You need to think harder. Surely you did something wrong. By the way, have any of you ever had a friend like Job's that tried to let you know that the reason you're going through what you're going through is you must have done something wrong. You must not have had enough faith. You must not have, and you fill in the blank on whatever that is. And so they come and they, they say, you're guilty. He says, I'm not. It ends in a stalemate. 
And for 35 chapters, it leads us up to Job chapter 38. And as we come to Job chapter 38, God now breaks the silence in a stunning fashion where he's about to let Job and his friends and all of time and history know, I am the center, says the Lord. So if you're ready for this, say, let's do it. Job 38.1, listen to these words of which there's nothing like it in all of scripture, to be honest. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay and under a seal and its feathers stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. Where is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths of their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. Verse 24, what is the way to the places where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Point number one of what I need you to know today, if you're going to recenter things, number one is this. Our view of God is too small and... Our confidence in ourselves is too big. God is going to expand the view of Job and let him see, Job, I get it. You have made me shrunk. You have minimized me. But oh, church, one of the purposes of even gathering in microchurches and churches and preaching is for someone to get up and say, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord. Because our view of God drifts to be too small when we become the center and our view and our, of our own opinions becomes too large because we assume that we see clearly. That social scientists tell us that when we retell stories, we could pass lie detector tests and say, no, 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 I've got the story right and we've got the story wrong. We swear that we've remembered things right and we've remembered absolutely wrong. Like our memories are fallible, our perspectives are limited, our objectivity is a joke. We are so subjective, are so limited. God is not so much questioning Job's sincerity, but he is questioning Job's ability. Job, your eyes are too small. Your perception is too limited. And you want me to explain your suffering because Job is suffering. And for 35 chapters, he's like, God, I want an answer. He basically says, I want an audience with the Most High. 
And if I see God, I'm going to demand an answer of him. And he says, Job, you want me to answer to you a reason for your suffering. You want me to explain your suffering, but can you explain my creation? I remember when the pastor before me, Pastor Lastinger, was, we were kind of turning over the reins and the church had elected me to be pastor for about a year and a half. We co-pastored and I remember watching him and I would watch so many things and I'd be like, man, pastor, how hard can that be? How hard can it be to be the pastor? Like, it just, sometimes pastor would seem tired or, or, you know, something was kind of difficult or the, the load was too heavy. And I'm like, pastor, come on. I, I always get a, you know, a kick out of it when my kids say, hey, dad, you know, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm, I, I pastor the church. Like, yeah, I know, but I mean, like, what do you do for a job? I'm like, I mean, I know you show up and preach on Sundays, but you, you know, you just probably do that from doing your quiet times or something. You know, like, what do you do the rest? I remember when I became pastor, I remember there was a week in that first year where someone was dying and I'm sitting in a hospital bed and, and they're about to expire. They're about to breathe their last breath. And I'm like, man, what do you say or do in moments? And then I left there, and I go into a premarital counseling session with somebody that's about to get married, and they're celebrating their marriage. And then I'm talking to someone else in the same week that's like had a miscarriage, and then someone else that's found out that they're pregnant. And, and you're sort of changing gears, and, and you develop these friendships with people, but then you're the pastor, and so it's awkward. Are they your friend? Or are they just, are you my friend because you're my pastor? Is this your job? And, and I remember getting just no time at all into being the senior pastor and just wanting to call up Pastor Lassiter and say, hey, Pastor, what would you do now? Because now that I'm sitting in this spot, I realize I know a lot less than I thought I did. Some of you kids one day are going to find out when you become parents. Oh, it looks so easy to be a parent, especially if a teenager. Oh, man. God bless you. God bless See, our view of our God is too small. Our confidence in ourselves, it's, it's too big. When you get down here where he says in verse 24, what is the way to where the lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts channels for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? Watch this. To water a land where no one lives. An uninhabited desert. To which if I'm Job, I would say, God... In case you don't realize this, I could care less. If it's an uninhabited desert, I'll never see it. If it's a deserted place, I'll never have to be there. If it's some kind of uninhabited place where I'm never going to be, why would I care about things where I will never be there to which God says exactly? Do you not understand there are parts of creation that have nothing to do Scientists will tell us they'll go down to the depths of the sea and they have discovered things in the regions where no light has reached. And they have discovered and found things that have existed for thousands or millions of years and no human eye has ever gazed upon them. And there is beauty and splendor and glory and majesty and colors that would blow your mind to which people are like, whoa, we're so confused. Why would all that be wasted down there at the bottom of the ocean where no human could ever see it? But that begs the question, what if some of the things at the bottom of the sea weren't made for your eyes but him? 
whose eyes can see when there is no dark because darkness is as light for you and there is nothing that is concealed from your view, oh God. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, there are some parts of creation, God didn't make them for you, he made them for him. Sounds, and, and I get it, as humans, when we've centered ourselves at the center of it all, we have made too much of ourselves. I want you to understand this. This is going to be very good news before we're done, but it's hard news at first, which is, Job, you thought it was all about you. There are uninhabited places that no one knows about. They're not for your glory. They're for my glory. What you're going to discover in sort of John Piper fashion is we are most satisfied in life when he is most glorified. When he is most glorified is when you will be most satisfied. That's how it works. The best thing that could ever happen for your soul, your life, your marriage, your kids, your career is when he gets the glory. But I'm telling you, the danger is when we are the center of our universe, our universe eventually falls apart. This is why when we're reading and he describes in verse 31, can you bind the chains of Pleiades? He's talking about the, the stars now. Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with his cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way and they report to you, here we are. Or as Isaiah chapter 40, 25, and 26 says, To whom will you compare me, says the Lord, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see he who created these. According to Scripture, every single one of the billions and trillions of stars is there by God's appointment. But Mike, we can't even see. We sent out a Hubble telescope, and the Hubble has just begun to scratch the surface of the, universe, the known universe. And I'm letting you know, there is so much more than that hundreds of thousands of year, light years ago that were shining and proclaiming. And what do they declare? The Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Can we just take a 15-second pause and can we line up with the stars for a minute and say we give the glory and the honor to the Most High. It is all about God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one that by his voice the heavens are held together. Creation itself holds together by the voice, by his very tongue, by the word of God himself. Can we just say amen to the stars for a minute? Amen. Right there online. You can just say, Amen, stars. Amen, Orion. Big Dipper. Amen. Next time you're looking at the stars, you're like, I don't know what to say. I'll tell you what you say. Amen. Because they are declaring the glory of God. <laughs> it's funny when you watch people posting online, they, take, they, they see this beautiful mountain and, and, they, and they take selfies of themselves with the, in the beautiful mountain. They, they got to get in the picture as if the mountain, they're like, man, God made this mountain for me. I'm not trying to put anybody down. He, <laughs> but it, it's, it's possible the reason you sense splendor and glory on a mountain is because who it was actually made for is splendid and glorious. Number one, we, we, we need to realize our view of God is too small. Our confidence and our own abilities, opinions, estimations is, is too big. Number two, chapter 40 
it's, it's going to be a, a good thing that God does here, what, what he's going to do to, to Job when he's going to say in chapter 40, with, the Lord says, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered and says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once. I've got no answer. Twice I'll say no more. So Job's shutting up. In verse 6 now, he said, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And he says, brace yourself like a man. I will ask you and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Number two, our striving for true justice without the true judge always ends in frustration. When we are the center, we always twist justice to our own self-centered interests. When we are the center of our universe, we will cherry-pick certain issues of justice at the exclusion, to the exclusion of others. We will say, oh, I really care about this one. But when we are the center, we must be careful because we will allow our nationality or our personality or our proclivities to be the thing that determines that which we call just. When God says, and what we're about to find out from Job here in Job, is that God is saying to Job, wait, you are questioning my justice in order to justify yourself. And if ever there was a generation that is doing this, this verse sums up the generation that we live in right now. Would you discredit my justice so that you may justify yourself? Woody Allen was asked about God, and he says, you know, I, I think I believe in God. I I sort of believe in God. I just feel like he's a bit of an underachiever. Because if he's got all that power and he's got all that knowledge and people think he's loving, then how do you explain all the junk that goes on in the world? So yeah, there might be a God, but let's just face it, he's an underachiever. To which God would say to Woody Allen, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Verse nine, Job, do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Verse 10, then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Verse 11, unleash the fury of your wrath. Now watch how the word all comes out because this is the issue of justice. The issue is not can you get one call right? Oh, I got a strike, ball. What makes a good umpire is not that they get one call right or two calls right. Because the game is ruined by one bad call. See, that's what everyone's not getting about. Never have more people been shouting for that which is right, for justice, for you know, whatever the values are that people say. But what she says, adorn yourself with splendor, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. See, Job wants to be justified. His, he's lost everything. He, he's lost his, his family, his possessions, his, his clout, his his designer clothes, he's lost it. His body is covered with sore. He is a, a walking curse. He wants to be vindicated. He wants to be justified. 
And all of us do. There's something in us that desperately wants to be justified. This is why we judge other people on their actions, and we want to be judged on our intentions. Like we do something wrong, like, whoa, whoa, no, but I, I didn't mean anything by that. Yeah, but when other people do things that they didn't mean anything by, you're like, yeah, but you did it. We judge other people on what they said. We want us to be judged on what we meant by what we said. God says, wait, judge, you, you, you want to judge? You, you want justice? Job, are you prepared to call every ball and every strike of every game in all of history perfectly? Is, are, are you prepared? Do you think you can? I remember being at a soccer game. You ever seen a soccer mom? And, and you've got, like, there's a, like a 19-year-old kid from Santa Fe College that's making money on the side, and he's, and he's, you know, refing a game. He's the only ref that showed up, and there's a soccer game. And there's nothing like a parent to demand justice when their child is being oppressed by the referee. You are an idiot. You are worthless. A rope, a tree, hang the referee. I mean, I've heard parents say things like this. I remember being in one where, where the referee finally stopped, turns, looks at the stands, and says to the parent, would you like to come and do this? To which the parent's like, I sure would. He's like, this is not worth the $15 I'm being paid for this hour and a half of experiencing the torment of people like you that seem possessed by something. And there really was that moment of like, wait a minute, are, are you prepared to go out and be the righteous judge? Because moms tend to be concerned about justice for one person, Johnny. And Johnny's even evil himself, but she is getting prepared to be, oh, but Johnny can do no wrong because that's her Johnny. Oh, and Johnny deserves, he deserves to, what's fair and what's right. You know, what God says to him here, he's like, wait a minute, do you, want, do you think you understand justice? I do understand justice, but church, do we? Little kid in Gainesville, Florida, Orlando, Florida, being abused by another kid. We demand justice. So we take a 17-year-old kid that's abusing a 12-year-old kid, and we bring him to juvenile court. We demand justice. He's an oppressor. He's evil. And it's a very simple thing. Go lock him up. And so we put him in, into the, he gets into the system. And you put him in the system. And we know what the system is going to do. Unfortunately, what happens when you dig, sometimes you find out that the kid that's doing the abusing has also been abused. And if you've ever been part of the justice system and you're, if you've ever just known a human if you've ever just been honest and like it says in scripture that a man of understanding, he, he digs for the depths. You find out it's not always as simple as just go lock somebody up because we've seen a kid who's eight, an 18-year-old teenager that gets locked up. And let's say what he did on a scale of one to 10 in our minds. Oh, that was a four. And it was bad. He deserves to get locked. Let's say he deserves to get locked up. And then he goes into a penal system where not only is he locked up, He's going to be violated and treacherously treated and, and tormented by grown men, by 45-year-old men that are going to do things, horrible, unspeakable things to an 18-year-old. And, and, and you're like, wait, was that justice? Was that justice? 
What God is going to say to Job, he said, wait, wait, you, you think you, you, you will know, you will bury them all in dust together? You, you will be able to, like right now, look at all who are proud and, and crush them where they stand? Like, wait, you think you understand justice where, boom, you get it right, right there on the seat. A lot of, I, I hear a lot of people crying out for justice. What they really mean is they want vengeance. And I get it. When you're angry, of course, when you're suffering, you're the center of the universe. What God says is justice is more than retribution. Justice means making things right. Justice means it's, see, sometimes, yeah, a kid does need to be separated from another kid. But justice has got to be beyond divvying out punishment. Justice in God's heart includes restoration. That's why the Bible says in Micah chapter 6, what does the Lord require of us? Do justice but love mercy and walk humbly. See, there's always a danger of demanding justice devoid of mercy and humility. When, when we advocate for justice and we demand justice, but we have no humility of, of decentering ourselves, you got to get out of the center. Like, take yourself off the center. You, you're unprepared for this. If you're a mom who's watching their son, you are dis qualified from being the judge of that game because by definition there is one center and it's little Johnny who might not even be very good and he might not even be a very good person but he's your baby he's your child you'll do anything for him and we need you doing that we don't need you being a judge though and we need you being honest about the fact that you are far more subjective than you realize that you are and our striving for justice without the true judge always ends in frustration and God says to Job, Job, you are not a good judge but I am and there are things you don't understand and there are explanations I'm not going to give you and there are things that are going to never make sense perhaps on this side of heaven. There may be things you will never come to know in this lifetime. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. What I do need you knowing is I am the judge. And I'm the only wise judge. See, God is not questioning Job's integrity or sincerity. He is questioning his humility. <laughs> like the man that went up to the photographer after they had done a family photo shoot and he says, hey, I need you to look at these photos. They don't do me justice. He said, sir, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> And there's a lot of truth in that for us. I need the mercy of God. And Job may have been the greatest human that was walking the earth on his, at his time, but the Bible says that there's none righteous, not even one. The best person in this room still is in desperate need of God's mercy. The most righteous person that's watching me right now, you may be the best justice advocate, righteousness voice in all of Gainesville, in all of Florida, in all of America, in any one of the 67 counties of Florida. You need the mercy of God. How do we put God back at the center? Number one, we got to realize God is big. Number two, realize that God is just. Number three, and this is the final move. It's in chapter 40. We see this where... It's this final move that God makes. He says in verse 15, he's about to bring up two mysterious length animals. These are mysterious creatures that he's about to spend an unusually large amount of scriptural time on. Theologians aren't even completely sure what these animals are. Some people think they're mythological. I don't, I don't think that's the issue. Some think that they're dinosaurs. I, I actually think one of them is probably the, a hippo. One of them is probably a crocodile. Verse 15, here's what I think is the hippo. Look at the behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. 
what strength it has in its loins, what power in its muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. Verse 18, its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. Verse 23, a raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordans should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? Second animal, verse, chapter 41, verse 1. Can you, put, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? <laughs> or tie, its, tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? They, they, many of us think this is probably a crocodile. Will it, will it speak to you with gentle words? Verse 8, if you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it's overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand? And here's the point. Who is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Number one, our, our view of God is too small. God is big. Number two, our our justice is twisted. Our God is just. But number three, the true God will not be tamed. What is the point that God is making by showing Job the two mightiest creatures that he would have known to know that there's no human that's going to go catch a crocodile? One of these, I mean, I don't know if you've seen how big crocodiles can get. You're not going to catch one of these, Job. And here is our dilemma. On one hand, we want a God that is big enough to save us and heal us and deliver us and give us wisdom and run the universe and enforce justice. And then we want a God that's small enough that we can explain. We take, I, I hear people debating issues like the Trinity. And by the way, church, you, you need to know this. God is eternally existent as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can say, well, well, I can't explain that. Good, because you need a God bigger than your explanation. You, you should be delighting in the fact that God is one, and yet he is Father, and he is Son, and he is Holy Spirit. And people say, well, if I can't explain it, it must not be true. No, if you can't explain it, you might be human. See, the true God will not be tamed. And there's something in us that wants a God that we can explain and manage and manipulate and stick into a little religious theme park like Shamu, where we say, God, do some tricks for us right now. We want to go to church and say, ooh, man, I like when you give me those goosebumps. I, I, I like to go and, and get, I, I want to get my jollies off of something that happens. And, and there's something about it. And even the last 10 years when we've seen where like Shamu, the killer whale at times has, has done violence to their trainers. And it's like, wait a minute, has it dawned on us that the killer whale was not made to, to be confined to little pools and theme parks where little Johnnies get to come and say, do it again, do it again. The killer whale was made for the ocean where it has no bounds. And God was not made to be confined 
to the, to the limits of our imaginations of, well, I, well the way, I, I like kind of like Talladega Nights. Yeah, I like to think of God like little baby Jesus. I, I like to think of God like, the, the way I like. It doesn't matter what you want to think of God like. He will not be tamed. That's, that's the point of how he closes out this, 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 I mean, his closing illustration are two animals to which chapter 42. Then Job replies, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, what is this? Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I, I, I get it. I just read this, these chapters, but if you read the whole book straight through, you heard 35 straight chapters of Job saying, I want to meet with God. When I see God, he will have to answer to me. God is going to tell me. He's going to have to give me answers. And now he finally gets a chance to get his answers, and he shuts his mouth. See, Job's problem and our problem is that we have a warped view of God. I hear people say sometimes, yeah, I follow Jesus. I'm like, yeah, what Jesus do you follow? I believe in God. The question is, what God do you believe in? Because idolatry is not just failing to use the name Jesus. It's ascribing to Jesus some other image other than what Jesus is. Idolatry is not simply not believing in God and setting up an idol. It's making an image of the true God into something else. Job's problem is that he's made God too small and too tame and too predictable and too lame and too much under his control and too much in a theme park. And I just need you to understand, you cannot build a theme park big enough to confine God. <laughs> Mike, what are you trying to say? I'm saying this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, woe is me. When Peter was on a boat and he saw the glory of God and, and, and God exposing some of his miraculous power, he falls to his face. He says, woe is me, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And when Job has an encounter with God, when he has a firsthand encounter with God, he says, woe is me. I, I, I got no more questions. Any demands? No more demands. I'll shut my mouth now. Friends, every time someone has a legitimate, genuine, first-hand encounter with God, the fear of the Lord comes upon them because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus, you are Lord God. You are great and there is no other. But, but I thought God is love. Oh, God is love. The fear of the Lord is not the end of wisdom, but it's the beginning of wisdom. Yes, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends, but you will never become his friend unless you have first bowed and become his servants. Because you cannot have friendship with someone you do not know. And to be with him and to not know that he is untamable, that he is righteous, that he is holy, that he is holy, 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 is to not know him at all. You cannot be a friend of someone you do not know. And to know God and to be a friend of God is to know there is no one so great as God. Mike, what's the, what's the application of this sermon? Well, here it is. The next time you're in pain, decenter you and recenter God. You get stopped by a cop. Oh, nuts. All oh, this. Oh, God, why are you doing this to me? No, decenter you, recenter God. 
It's not just pain. The next time you have pleasure, decenter you, recenter God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that look like? Well, it looks like what I just read to you. I think on one hand, it means in chapter 40, verse 5, or verse 4, he says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. What does it mean to decenter yourself in real life situations? It means the next time you're suffering, here's a, this is, I don't want to be harsh, shut your mouth. I, I like how he said, I'm going to put my hand on my mouth because I know my mouth is going to keep running. Sometimes my kids and I play this game. One of them put their hand on my mouth. I go, that might be a great thing to do. You're suffering and you want to have, you're in an argument with your spouse. You, you and your roommate are kind of going at it. Who gets the last word? Because when you need the last word, that's evidence that you are the center. Who gets the last word? Wait, I just got one more thing to say. God, Job's got a lot more things. In fact, for 35 chapters, he said, I got one more thing to say. So he said it. Then they're like, well, I got something else to say. He's like, well, then I have another thing to say. Well, I have another thing to say. Have any of you ever argued and it got nowhere? Has that ever happened to anybody? We're about to find out some great news from God, which goes like this. Job, you are trying so hard to justify and vindicate yourself. If you would stop, I will. If you'll stop trying to vindicate yourself, I will vindicate you instead and I'm a better vindicator than you are. If you'll stop trying to justify why you are right, I will actually prove that you're right, Job. To which Job's like, ah, but, I, but I'm not sure that this can happen. No, no, it can. And, and, and he ends it right here. He says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Right after this, it says in verse seven, last chapter, the Lord, after he said these things, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. What? For 35 chapters, Job's been trying to say, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. It gets nowhere. When Job finally shuts up, shuts his mouth, and repents, God actually comes and says, Job was right. See, friends, if only we would humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he would lift us up. This is what he would do because, number one, God's big. Number two, God's just. Number three, God is untamable. But where this really ends is that when, when God actually shows up, you're going to find out he's actually good. Job, it's, it's wild to me. He gets no explanations. None of his questions get answered. None of his pain goes away. And yet he seems to be somehow strangely satisfied by God's answers. He says, why am I suffering? God says, look at the crocodile and the hippo. And Job's like, Man, you're right. I'm, guys, it, that's really what happens. It's stunning. You're like, wait. I mean, imagine someone's like, I want to know. What city were you in last night? And he's like, ah, talk to me about the crocodile. Well, you didn't answer any of my questions. I had all these questions. God answers none of them. And somehow he ends up satisfied. Why? Because if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, when Lucy is asking Mr. Beaver about Aslan, and she says, Aslan is a lion? The lion? The great lion? Ooh, says Susan. I, I thought he'd be a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. 
He's the king, I tell you. He is glorious, and he is just, and he is untamable. And yet he's so good. Listen to this. When you hear his voice, even when he doesn't tell you what you want to hear, it brings peace to your heart. I mean, some of you know this is true. You're like, Jesus, why? And then you get into some place, you get into that deep place, you're worshiping, you're, you're in the word of God, you're in prayer, you're in meditation, you're in quiet, and then God shows up and, and he speaks a few syllables and you're like, oh! It's like my wife Ruthie, when, with our kids, like one of our kids would be inconsolable and, then, and Ruthie would pick up one of our children just going, and then she'd start to sing and, and she'd start to, all the child needed to hear was Ruth's voice. I'm telling you, sometimes I don't even know what he's saying, but when I know it's him, it's enough. Because there's something about the presence of God that Job is about to learn. Job, you've known me from a distance. Are you ready to know me for real? And there's some of you that I got to say this. You've known him because your parents raised you in a good way, and it's good where you are. It's good how you've gotten where you are. But has it happened to you like what happened to Job when Job said, when, when he's describing this and when, when he's saying all this and he's saying, oh man, I, I had heard of you. I, I had spoken of things I didn't understand. I, my I, ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In other words, I knew you from afar, but, but there's, I'm in your presence now. And when I'm in your presence, even if I, I'd rather be covered with sores and have your voice spoken over me. But Lord, like it says in Psalm 29, Lord, don't, let, don't be silent to me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Lord, in in some ways, I do have questions for you, but Job, what you need is not answers. What you need is me. And there's some of you I need to tell you, I will pray for you to get healed, and I will pray for your suffering to go away, and I will pray for your problems to be alleviated, but I'm telling you this, I've got something even better, which is this. When you get God, you get it all. He's better He's just, he's just better. That's why when God speaks, even when it's not what we wanted, it, it seems to change things. And that's why what we, and I'm telling you the theme, and I'm gonna, I'll land this next week in, in James 5, I'll say it again. As you know, we've heard of blessed Job, it says, and you've heard how the Lord finally, what he finally brought about because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. If you read the book of Job and you don't walk away saying the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, you haven't yet read it correctly. You're supposed to listen to him say, I am big and I am just and I'm untamable. And you walk away going, oh Lord, you are full of compassion and mercy. How does that happen? Because the presence of God points to the one who when Job has been put down in dust and ashes, when he finally humbles himself, God says, all right, Job, are you done justifying yourself? Now I'm gonna jump in and justify you. Eliphaz, Accusers, adversary, you back off in my name. This is my son. Because that's what Jesus is going to do on a cross. The reason he can go up on a cross and his words mean something is because the one that went up on the cross is the one who is big and holy and untamable. And when he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, those words count. See, some of us have underdosed on the holiness of God which has neutered the love of God. And I want you to go fully on the fear of the Lord 
so that you can go fully on the friendship of the Lord and it will thrill your soul. I end it like this. I read the story this week of a man named Juan Garrison raised in witchcraft. He was invited to go to this, this production, like a play. It was called The Greatest Story Ever Told. So he looked up the address. He went to this thing called The Greatest Story Ever Told. He ended up at a church. He's like, what am I doing at a church? Why is there a play at a church? It was called a passion play. This guy that's been raised in witchcraft, very, very far from God, he was moved by the whole thing. But what most hit him was when Jesus came out bloodied. He stumbled right to a pew in front of where he was sitting. He looked straight up at him and he said, I did this for you. He said his soul was gripped at at someone that would do this for him and who it is that would do this for him. At the end of the play, this pastor comes up and he gives what he didn't know at the time. It was an altar call. He said, the next thing you know, I had walked down to the front, bowed my knees and received the grace and mercy of the one who did that for me. Church, Job, Tiffany, Terrence, Marcus, Mary. He did it for you. The one who is holy and the one who is big and the one who is just and the one who is untamable is the one who went up on a cross and has the grace to tame your Leviathan heart. The only one that can tame Leviathan of a man named Saul and turn him into a Paul is the grace of God. Because at the end of the day, what what gets you is that the one that is all of that would so love you that he would sacrifice all of it to be able to rescue and redeem you. If you've not yet been justified by Jesus, I'm calling you today to turn, repent, do what Job did. Put your hand on your mouth, stop justifying, stop defending, and call him the Lord. If you are his and you're suffering right now, before you leave the service, before you get offline, Decenter you and recenter him. And next week, we're going to come and we're going to celebrate redemption because this story ends really, really well.